This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. George Eliot, Middlemarch, Chapter 56 How happy is he born and taught, that serveth no other's will, whose armour is his honest thought, and simple truth his only skill. This man is freed from servile bands, of hope to rise or fear to fall, lord of himself, though not of lands, and having nothing, yet hath all. Sir Henry Wotton Dorothea's confidence in Caleb Garth's knowledge, which had begun on her hearing that he approved of her cottages, had grown fast during her stay at Freshett. Sir James, having induced her to take rides over the two estates, in company with himself and Caleb, who quite returned her admiration, and told his wife that Mr. Casserborn had a head for business most uncommon in a woman. It must be remembered that by business Caleb never meant money transactions, but the skilful application of labour. "'Most uncommon,' repeated Caleb. She said a thing I often used to think myself when I was a lad. Mr. Garth, I should like to feel, if I lived to be old, that I had improved a great piece of land and built a great many good cottages, because the work is of a healthy kind while it's being done, and after it is done men are the better for it. Those were the very words. She sees into things in that way. "'But a womanly, I hope,' said Mrs. Garth, half suspecting that Mr. Casaubon might not hold the true principle of subordination. "'Oh, you can't think,' said Caleb, shaking his head. "'You would like to hear her speak, Susan. She speaks in such plain words and a voice like music. Bless me! It reminds me of bits in the Messiah, and straight away there appeared a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, It has a tone with it that satisfies your ear. Caleb was very fond of music, and when he could afford it, went to hear an oratorio that came within his reach, returning from it with a profound reverence for this mighty structure of tones, which made him sit meditatively, looking on the floor and throwing much unutterable language into his outstretched hands. With this good understanding between them, it was natural that Dorothea asked Mr. Garth to undertake any business connected with the three farms and the numerous tenements attached to Lowick Manor. Indeed, his expectation of getting work for two was being fast fulfilled. As he said, business breeds, and one form of business which was beginning to breed just then was the construction of railways. A projected line was to run through Lowick Parish, where the cattle had hitherto grazed in a peace unbroken by astonishment, and thus it happened that the infant struggles of the railway system entered into the affairs of Caleb Garth, and determined the course of this history with regards to two persons who were dear to him. The submarine railway may have its difficulties, but the bed of the sea is not divided among various landed proprietors with claims for damages not only measurable but sentimental. 
in the hundred to which middlemarch belonged railways were as exciting as a topic as the reform bill or the imminent horrors of cholera and those who held the most decided views on the subject were women and landholders women both old and young regarded travelling by steam as presumptuous and dangerous and argued against it by saying that nothing should induce them to get into a railway carriage while proprietors differing from each other in their arguments as much as mr solomon featherstone differed from lord medlicott were yet unanimous in the opinion that in selling land whether to the enemy of mankind or to a company obliged to purchase these pernicious agencies must be made to pay a very high price to landowners for permission to injure mankind but the slower wits such as mr solomon and mr wall who both occupied land of their own took a long time to arrive at this conclusion their minds halting at the vivid conception of what it would be to cut the big pasture in two and turn it into three-cornered bits which would be know-how while accommodation bridges and high payments were remote and incredible the counts will all cast their calves brother said mrs wall in a tone of deep melancholy if the railway comes across the near close and i shouldn't wonder at the mare too if she was in full it's a poor tale if a widow's property is to be spaded away and the law say nothing to it what's to hinder them from cutting right and left if they begin it is well known i can't fight the best way would be say nothing and set somebody on to send em away with a flea in their ear when they came spying and measuring said solomon folks did that about brassing by what i can understand it's all a pretense if the truth was known about their being forced to take one away let em go cutting in another parish and i don't believe in any pay to make amends for bringing a lot of ruffians to trample your crops where's a company's pocket brother peter god forgive him got money out of a company said mr wall but that was for the manganese that wasn't for railways to blow you to pieces right and left well there is this to be said jane mr solomon concluded lowering his voice in a cautious manner the more spokes we put in their wheel the more they pay us to let em go on if they must come whether or not this reasoning of mr solomon's was perhaps less thorough than he imagined his cunning bearing about the same relation to the course of railways as the cunning of diplomatists bears to the general chill or catarrh of the solar system but he set about acting on his views in a thoroughly diplomatic manner by stimulating suspicion his side of lowick was the most remote from the village and the houses of the labouring people were either lone cottages or were collected in a hamlet called frick where a water-mill and some stone-pits made a little centre of slow heavy-shouldered industry in the absence of any precise idea as to what railways were public opinion in frick was against them for the human mind in that grassy corner had not the proverbial tendency to admire the unknown holding rather that it was likely to be against the poor man and that suspicion was the only wise attitude with regard to it even the rumour of reform had not yet excited any millennial expectations in frick 
there being no definite promise in it as of gratuitous grains to fatten hiram's forged pig or of a publican at the weights and scales who would brew beer for nothing or of an offer on the part of the three neighbouring farmers to raise wages during winter and without distinct good of this kind in its promises reform seemed on a footing with the bragging of peddlers which was a hint for distrust to every knowing person the men of frick were not ill-fed and were less given to fanaticism than to a strong muscular suspicion less inclined to believe that they were peculiarly cared for by heaven than to regard heaven itself as rather disposed to take them in a disposition observable in the weather thus the mind of frick was exactly of the sort for mr solomon featherstone to work upon he having more plantious ideas of the same order with a suspicion of heaven and earth which was better fed and more entirely at leisure solomon was overseer of the roads at that time and on his slow-paced cob often took his rounds by frick to look at the workmen getting the stones there pausing with a mysterious deliberation which might have misled you into supposing that he had some other reason for staying than the mere want of impulse to move after looking for a long while at any work that was going on he would raise his eyes a little and look at the horizon finally he would shake his bridle touch his horse with a whip and get it to move slowly onward the hour hand of a clock was quick by comparison with mr solomon who had an agreeable sense that he could afford to be slow he was in the habit of pausing for a cautious vaguely designing chat with every hedger or ditcher on his way and was especially willing to listen even to news which he had heard before feeling himself at an advantage over all narrators in partially disbelieving them one day however he got into a dialogue with hiram ford a wagoner in which he himself contributed information he wished to know whether hiram had seen fellows with staves and instruments spying about they called themselves railroad people but there was no telling what they were on or what they meant to do the least they pretended was that they were going to cut lowick parish into sixes and sevens why there'll be no stirring from one place to another said hiram thinking of his wagon and horses not a bit said mr solomon and cutting up fine land such as this parish let em go into tipton say i but there's no knowing what there is at the bottom of it traffic is what they put for hard but it's to do harm to the land and the poor man in the long run why they're london chaps i reckon said hiram who had a dim notion of london as a centre of hostility to the country ay to be sure and in some parts against brassing by what i've heard say the folks fell on em when they were spying and broke their peepholes as they carry and drove em away so as they knew better than come again it war good fun i'd be bound said hiram whose fun was much restricted by circumstances well i wouldn't meddle with em myself said solomon but some say this country's seen its best days and the sign is said as it's being overrun with these fellows trampling right and left and wanting to cut it up into railways and all for the big traffic to swallow up the little so as there shan't be a team left on the land nor a whip to crack 
I'll crack my whip about their earn afore they bring it into that, though, said Iram, while Mr. Solomon, shaking his bridle, moved onward. Nettle seed needs no digging. The ruin of this countryside by railroads was discussed not only at the weights and scales, but in the hay-field, where the muster of working hands gave opportunities for talk, such as were rarely had through the rural year. One morning, not long after that interview between Mr. Fairbrother and Mary Garth, in which she confessed to him her feeling for Fred Vincey, it happened that her father had some business which took him to Jodrell's farm in the direction of Frick. It was to measure and value an outlying piece of land belonging to Lowick Manor, which Caleb expected to dispose of advantageously for Dorothea. It must be confessed that his bias was towards getting the best possible terms from railroad companies. He put up his jig at Jodrell's and in walking with his assistant and measuring chain to the scene of his work. He encountered the party of the company's agents who were adjusting their spirit level. After a little chat he left them, observing that by and by they would reach him again where he was going to measure. It was one of those grey mornings after light rains, which become delicious about twelve o'clock, when the clouds part a little, and the scent of the earth is sweet along the lanes and by the hedgerows. The scent would have been sweeter to Fred Vincey, who was coming along the lanes on horseback if his mind had not been worried by unsuccessful efforts to imagine what he was to do with his father on one side expecting him straight away to enter the church with mary on the other threatening to forsake him if he did enter it and with a working-day world showing no eager need whatever of a young gentleman without capital and generally unskilled it was the harder to Fred's disposition, because his father, satisfied that he was no longer rebellious, was in good humour with him, and had sent him on this pleasant ride to see after some greyhounds. Even when he had fixed on what he should do, there would be the task of telling his father. But it must be admitted that the fixing, which had to come first, was the more difficult task. What secular avocation on earth was there for a young man? whose friends could not get him an appointment which was at once gentlemanly lucrative and to be followed without special knowledge riding along the lanes by frick in this mood and slackening his pace while he reflected whether he should venture to go round by lowick parsonage to call on mary he could see over the hedges from one field to another suddenly a noise roused his attention and on the far side of a field on his left hand he could see six or seven men in smock-frocks with hay-forks in their hands making an offensive approach towards the four railway agents who were facing them while caleb garth and his assistant were hastening across the field to join the threatened group fred delayed a few moments by having to find the gate could not gallop up to the spot before the party in smock-frocks whose work of turning the hay had not been too pressing after swallowing their midday beer were driving the men in coats before them with their hay-forks while caleb garth's assistant a lad of seventeen who had snatched up the spirit level at caleb's order had been knocked down and seemed to be lying helpless the coated men had the advantage as runners and fred covered their retreat by getting in front of the smock-frocks and charging them suddenly enough to throw their chase into confusion what do you confound fools mean shouted fred pursuing the divided group in a zigzag and cutting right and left with his whip 
i swear to every one of you before the magistrate you've knocked the lad down and killed him for what i know you'll every one of you be hanged at the next assizes if you don't mind said fred who afterwards laughed heartily as he remembered his own phrases the laborers had been driven through the gateway into their hayfield and fred had checked his horse when he ran forward observing himself at a safe challenging distance turned back and shouted a defiance which he did not know to be homeric you're a coward you are you get off your horse young master and i'll have a round with ye i will you daren't come out without your hoss and a whip i'd soon knock the breath out on ye i would wait a minute and i'll come back presently have a round with you all in turn if you like said fred who felt confidence in his power of boxing with his dearly beloved brethren but just now he wanted to hasten back to caleb and the prostrate youth the lad's ankle was strained and he was in much pain from it but he was no further hurt and fred placed him on the halt that he might ride to jodrell's and be taken care of there let them put the horse in the stable and tell the surveyors that they can come back for their traps said fred the ground is clear now no no said caleb here's a breakage they'll have to give up for to-day and it will be as well here take the things before you on the horse tom they'll see you coming and they'll turn back i'm glad i happened to be here at the right moment mr garth said fred as tom rode away not knowing what might have happened if the cavalry had not come up in time ay ay it was lucky said caleb speaking rather absently and looking towards the spot where he had been at work at the moment of interruption but deuce take it this is what comes of men being fools i'm hindered of my day's work i can't get along without somebody to help me with a measuring chain however he was beginning to move towards the spot with a look of vexation as if he had forgotten fred's presence but suddenly he turned round and said quickly what have you got to do to-day young fellow nothing mr garth i'll help you with pleasure can i said fred with the sense that he should be courting mary when he was helping her father well you mustn't mind stopping and getting hot i don't mind anything only i want to go first and have a round with that hulky fellow who turned to challenge me it would be a good lesson for him i shall not be in five minutes nonsense said caleb with his most peremptory intonation i shall go and speak to the men myself it's all ignorance somebody has been telling them lies the poor fools don't know any better i shall go with you then said fred no no stay where you are i don't want your young blood i can take care of myself caleb was a powerful man and knew little of any fear except the fear of hurting others and the fear of having to speechify but he felt it his duty at this moment to try and give a little harangue there was a striking mixture in him which came from his having always been a hard-working man himself of rigorous notions about workmen and practical indulgence towards them to do a good day's work and to do it well he held to be part of their welfare as it was the chief part of his own happiness but he had a strong sense of fellowship with them when he advanced toward the laborers they had not gone to work again but were standing in that form of rural grouping which consists in each turning a shoulder towards the other at a distance of two or three yards they looked rather sulkily at caleb who walked quickly with one hand in his pocket and the other thrust between the buttons of his waistcoat and had his everyday mild air when he paused among them 
"'Why, my lads, how's this?' he began, taking as usual to brief phrases, which seemed pregnant to himself, because he had many thoughts lying under them, like the abundant roots of a plant that just manages to peep above the water. "'How came you to make such a mistake as this? Somebody has been telling you lies. You thought those men up there wanted to do mischief.' "'Oh!' was the answer, dropped at intervals by each according to his degree of unreadiness. Nonsense! No such thing! They're looking out to see which way the railroad is to take. Now, my lads, you can't hinder the railroad. It will be made whether you like it or not. And if you go fighting against it, you'll get yourselves into trouble. The law gives those men leave to come here on the land. The owner has nothing to say against it, and if you meddle with them, you'll have to do with the constable and Justice Blakesley, and with the handcuffs at Middlemarch Jail. And you might be in for it now, if anybody informed against you. Caleb paused here, and perhaps the greatest orator could not have chosen either his pause or his images better for the occasion. But come, you didn't mean any harm. Somebody told you the railroad was a bad thing. That was a lie. It may do a bit of harm here and there, to this and to that, and so does the sun in heaven. But the railway's a good thing. Ah, oh, good for the big folks to make money out on, said old Timothy Cooper, who had stayed behind, turning his hay while the others had been gone on their spree. And see lots of things turn up sin I were a young un. The war and the peace and the councils and the old King George and the region and the new King George and the new one who has got the new Niamen. It's been all alike to the poor man. What's the colonel's been, Tim? They ain't brought him neither me at nor beacon, nor wage to lay by, if he didn't save it with Clem in his own inside. Times ha got worse for him sin I were a young un, and so will it be with the railroads. They'll only leave the poor man further behind, but them are fools as meddle, and so are told the chaps here. This is the big folks where this is, but you're for the big folks, Muster Garth, you are. Timothy was a wiry old labourer of a type lingering in those times who had his savings in a stocking foot, lived in a lone cottage, and was not to be wrought on by any oratory, having as little for the feudal spirit, and believing as little as if he had not been totally unacquainted with the age of reason and the rights of man. Caleb was in a difficulty known to any person attempting in dark times, and unassisted by miracle to reason with rustics who are in possession of an undeniable truth which they know through a hard process of feeling, and can let it fall like a giant's club on you, neatly carved argument for a social benefit which they do not feel. Caleb had no count at command, even if he could have chosen to use it, and he had been accustomed to meet all such difficulties in no other way but doing his business faithfully. He answered, "'If you don't think well of me, Tim, never mind. That's neither here nor there now. Things may be bad for the poor man. Bad they are. But I want the lads here not to do what will make things worse for themselves.' The cattle may have a heavy load, but it won't help them to throw it over into the roadside pit when it's partly their own fodder. 
we were only for a bit of fun said hiram who was beginning to see consequences that's war all we were arter well promise me not to meddle again and i'll see that nobody informs against you i never meddle and i no call to promise said timothy no but the rest come i'm as hard at work as any of you to-day and i can't spare much time say you'll be quiet without the constable oh we won't meddle they may do as they like for us were the forms in which caleb got his pledges and then he hastened back to fred who had followed him and watched him in the gateway they went to work and fred helped vigorously his spirits had risen and he heartily enjoyed a good slip in the moist earth under the hedgerow which soiled his perfect summer trousers was it a successful onset which had elated him or the satisfaction of helping mary's father something more the accidents of the morning had helped his frustrated imagination to shape an employment for himself which had several attractions i am not sure that certain fibres in mr garth's mind had not resumed their old vibration towards the very end which now revealed itself to fred for the effective accident is but the touch of fire where there is oil and tow and it always appeared to fred that the railway brought the needed touch but they went on in silence except when their business demanded speech at last when they had finished and were walking away mr garth said a young fellow needn't be a b a to do this sort of work eh fred i wish i had taken to it before i had thought of being a b a said fred he paused a moment and then added more hesitatingly do you think i'm too old to learn your business mr garth my business is of many sorts my boy said mr garth smiling a good deal of what i know can only come from experience you can't learn it off as you learn things out of a book but you are young enough to lay a foundation yet caleb pronounced the last sentence emphatically but paused in some uncertainty he had been under the impression lately that fred had made up his mind to enter the church you do think i could do some good at it if i were to try said fred more eagerly that depends said caleb turning his head on one side and lowering his voice with the air of a man who felt himself to be saying something deeply religious you must be sure of two things you must love your work and not be always looking over the edge of it wanting your play to begin and the other is you must not be ashamed of your work and think it would be more honourable to you to be doing something else you must have a pride in your own work and in learning to do it well and not be always saying there's this and there's that if i had this or that to do i might make something of it no matter what a man is i wouldn't give tuppence for him here Calvus mouth looked bitter and he snapped his fingers whether he was the prime minister or the rick thatcher if he didn't do well what he undertook to do i can never feel that i should do that in being a clergyman said fred meaning to take a step in argument then let it alone my boy said caleb abruptly else you'll never be easy or if you are easy you'll be a poor stick that is very nearly what mary thinks about it 
said fred colouring i think you must know what i feel for mary mr garth i hope it does not displease you that i have always loved her better than any one else and that i shall never love any one as i love her the expression of Caleb's face was visibly softening while Fred spoke, but he swung his head with a solemn slowness and said, "'That makes things more serious, Fred, if you want to take Mary's happiness into your keeping.' "'I know that, Mr. Garth,' said Fred eagerly, "'and I would do anything for her. She says she will never have me if I go into the church, and I shall be the most miserable devil in the world if I lose all hope of Mary.' really if i could get some other profession business anything that i'm at all fit for i would work hard i would deserve your good opinion i should like to have to do with outdoor things i know a good deal about land and cattle already i used to believe you know though you will think me rather foolish for it that i should have land of my own i'm sure knowledge of that sort would come easily to me especially if i could be under you in any way "'Softly, my boy,' said Caleb, having the image of Susan before his eyes. "'What have you said to your father about all this?' "'Nothing yet, but I must tell him. I'm only waiting to know what I can do instead of entering the church. I'm very sorry to disappoint him, but a man ought to be allowed to judge for himself when he's four-and-twenty. How could I know when I was fifteen what it would be right for me to do now? My education was a mistake.' "'But hearken to this, Fred,' said Caleb. "'Are you sure Mary is fond of you, or would ever have you?' "'I asked Mr. Fairbrother to talk to her, because she had forbidden me. "'I didn't know what else to do,' said Fred apologetically. "'And he says that I have every reason to hope, "'if I can put myself in an honourable position, I mean out of the church.' I dare say you think it unwarrantable in me, Mr. Garth, to be troubling you and obtruding my own wishes about Mary, before I have done anything at all for myself. Of course I have not the least claim. Indeed, I have already a debt to you, which will never be discharged, even when I have been able to pay it in the shape of money. Yes, my boy, you have a claim, said Caleb, with much feeling in his voice. The young ones have always a claim on the old to help them forward. I was young myself once, and had to do without much help, but help would have been welcome to me, if it had been only for the fellow-feeling's sake, but I must consider. Come to me to-morrow, at the office at nine o'clock. At the office, mind. Mr. Garth would take no important step without consulting Susan, but it must be confessed that before he reached home he had taken his resolution. With regard to a large number of matters about which other men are decided or obstinate, he was the most easily manageable man in the world. He never knew what he, meat he would choose, and if Susan had said they ought to live in a four-roomed cottage in order to save, he would have said, let us go, without inquiring into details. But were Caleb's feeling and judgment strongly pronounced, he was a ruler and in spite of his mildness and timidity in reproving, every one about him knew that on the exceptional occasions when he chose, he was absolute. He never indeed chose to be absolute except on someone else's behalf. On ninety-nine points Mrs. Garth decided, but on the hundredth she was often aware that she would have to perform the singularly difficult task of carrying out her own principle and to make herself subordinate. 
"'It has come round as I thought, Susan,' said Caleb, when they were seated alone in the evening. He had already narrated the adventure which had brought about Fred's sharing in his work, but had kept back the further result. "'The children are fond of each other. I mean Fred and Mary.' Mrs. Garth laid her work on her knee, and fixed her penetrating eyes anxiously on her husband. After we'd done our work, Fred poured it all out to me. He can't bear to be a clergyman, and Mary says she won't have him if he's one, and the lad would like to be under me and give his mind to business, and I've determined to take him and make a man of him. Caleb, said Mrs. Garth in a deep contralto, expressive of resigned astonishment. "'It's a fine thing to do,' said Mr. Gass, settling himself firmly against the back of his chair and grasping the elbows. "'I shall have trouble with him, but I think I shall carry it through.' "'The lad loves Mary, and a true love for a good woman is a great thing, Susan. It shapes many a rough fellow.' "'Has Mary spoken to you on the subject?' said Mrs. Gass, secretly a little hurt that she had to be informed on it herself. "'Not a word.' I asked her about Fred once. I gave her a bit of warning. But she assured me she would never marry an idle, self-indulgent man. Nothing thins. But it seems Fred set on Mr. Fairbrother to talk to her, because she had forbidden him to speak himself. And Mr. Fairbrother has found out that she is fond of Fred, but says he must not be a clergyman. Fred's heart is fixed on Mary. That I can see. It gives me a good opinion of the lad, and we always liked him, Susan. "'It's a pity for Mary, I think,' said Mrs. Garth. "'Why a pity? "'Because, Caleb, she might have had a man who is worth twenty Fred Vinches.' "'Ah!' said Caleb, with surprise. "'I firmly believe that Mr. Fairbrother is attached to her and meant to make her an offer. "'But, of course, now that Fred has used him as envoy, there is an end to that better prospect.' There was a severe precision in Mrs. Garth's utterance. She was vexed and disappointed, but she was bent on abstaining from useless words. Caleb was silent a few moments under a conflict of feelings. He looked at the floor and moved his head and hands in accompaniment into some inward argumentation. At last he said, "'That would have made me very proud and happy, Susan, and I should have been glad for your sake.' I've always felt that your belongings have never been on a level with you. But you took me, though I was a plain man. I took the best and cleverest man I had ever known, said Mrs. Garth, convinced that she would never have loved anyone who came short of that mark. Well, perhaps others thought you might have done better, but it would have been worse for me. And that is what touches me close about Fred. The lad is good at bottom, and clever enough to do, if he is put in the right way, and he loves and honours my daughter beyond anything, and she has given him a sort of promise according to what he turns out. I say, that young man's soul in my hand, and I'll do the best I can for him, so help me God. It's my duty, Susan. Mrs. Garth was not given to tears, but there was a large one rolling down her face before her husband had finished. It came from the pressure of various feelings, in which there was much affection and some vexation. She wiped it away quickly, saying, "'Few men, besides you, would think it a duty to add to their anxieties in that way, Caleb.' 
That signifies nothing what other men would think. I've got a clear feeling inside me, and that I shall follow, and I hope your heart will go with me, Susan, in making everything as light as can be to Mary, poor child. Caleb, leaning back in his chair, looked with anxious appeal towards his wife. She rose and kissed him, saying, God bless you, Caleb. Our children have a good father. But she went out and had a hearty cry to make up for the suppression of her words. She felt sure that her husband's conduct would be misunderstood, and about Fred she was rational and unhopeful, which would turn out to have the more foresight in it, her rationality or Caleb's ardent generosity. When Fred went to the office next morning, there was a test to be gone through, which he was not prepared for. "'Now, Fred,' said Caleb, "'you will have some desk work. I have always done a good deal of writing myself, but I can't do without help, and as I want you to understand the accounts and get the values into your head, I mean to do without another clerk. So you must buckle to. How are you at writing and arithmetic?' Fred felt an awkward movement of the heart. He had not thought of desk work, but he was in a resolute mood, and not going to shrink. I'm not afraid of arithmetic, Mr. Garth. It always came easily to me. I think you know my writing. Let us see, said Caleb, taking up a pen, examining it carefully, and handing it well dipped to Fred with a sheet of ruled paper. Copy me a line or two of that valuation, with the figures at the end. At that time the opinion existed that it was beneath a gentleman to write legibly, or with a hand in the least suitable to a clerk. Fred wrote the lines demanded in a hand as gentlemanly as that of any Viscount or bishop of the day. The vowels were all alike, and the consonants only distinguishable as turning up or down. The strokes had a blotted solidity, and the letters disdained to keep the line. In short, it was a manuscript of that venerable kind, easy to interpret when you know beforehand what the writer means. As Caleb looked on, his visage showed a growing depression but when Fred handed him the paper, he gave something like a snarl and wrapped the paper passionately with the back of his hand. Bad work like this dispelled all Caleb's mildness. The deuce, he explained snarlingly, to think that this is a country where a man's education may cost hundreds and hundreds, and it turns you out this. Then, in a more pathetic tone, pushing up his spectacles and looking at the unfortunate scribe, "'The Lord have mercy on us, Fred. I can't put up with this.' "'What can I do, Mr. Garth?' said Fred, whose spirits had sunk very low, not only at the estimate of his handwriting, but at the vision of himself as liable to be ranked with office clerks. "'Do?' why you must learn to form your letters and keep the line what's the use of writing at all if nobody can understand it asked caleb energetically quite preoccupied with the bad quality of the work is there so little business in the world that you must be sending puzzles over the country but that's the way people are brought up i should lose no end of time with the letters some people send me if susan did not make them out for me it's disgusting here Caleb tossed the paper from him. Any stranger peeping into the office at that moment might have wondered what was the drama between the indignant man of business and the fine-looking young fellow whose blond complexion was getting rather patchy as he bit his lip with mortification. Fred was struggling with many thoughts. 
Mr. Garth had been so kind and encouraging at the beginning of their interview that gratitude and hopefulness had been at a high pitch, and the downfall was proportionate. He had not thought of desk work. In fact, like the majority of young gentlemen, he wanted an occupation which should be free from disagreeables. I cannot tell what might have been the consequences if he had not distinctly promised himself that he would go to Lowick to see Mary and tell her that he was engaged to work under her father. He did not like to disappoint himself there. I'm very sorry, were all the words that he could muster. But Mr. Garth was already relenting. We must make the best of it, Fred, he began, with a return to his usual quiet tone. Every man can learn to write. I taught myself, go at it with a will, and sit up at night if the daytime isn't enough. We'll be patient, my boy. Callum shall go on with the books for a bit while you are learning. But now I must be off, said Callum, rising. You must let your father know our agreement. You'll save me Callum's salary, you know, when you can write, and I can afford to give you eighty pounds for the first year and more after. When Fred made the necessary disclosure to his parents, the relative effect on the tube was a surprise which entered very deeply into his memory. He went straight from Mr. Garth's office to the warehouse, rightly feeling that the most respectful way in which he could behave to his father was to make the painful communication as gravely and formally as possible. Moreover, the decision would be more certainly understood to be final if the interview took place in his father's gravest hours, which were always those spent in his private room at the warehouse. Fred entered on the subject directly, and declared briefly what he had done and was resolved to do expressing at the end his regret that he should be the cause of disappointment to his father, and taking the blame on his own deficiencies. The regret was genuine, and inspired Fred with strong, simple words. Mr. Vincey listened in profound surprise, without uttering even an exclamation, a silence which in his impatient temperament was a sign of unusual emotion. He had not been in good spirits about trade that morning and the slight bitterness in his lips grew intense as he listened. When Fred had ended, there was a pause of nearly a minute, during which Mr. Vincey replaced a book in his desk and turned the key emphatically. Then he looked at his son steadily and said, "'So, you've made up your mind at last, sir?' "'Yes, father.' "'Very well. Stick to it. I have no more to say.' You've thrown away your education and gone down a step in life when I had given you the means of rising. That's all. I'm very sorry that we differ, father. I think I can be quite as much of a gentleman at the work I've undertaken as if I had been a curate. But I'm grateful to you for wishing me to do the best for me. Very well. I have no more to say. I wash my hands of you. I only hope when you have a son of your own, he will make a better return for the pains you spend on him. This was very cutting to Fred. His father was using that unfair advantage possessed by us all when we are in a pathetic situation and see our own past as if it were simply part of the partus. In reality, Mr. Vince's wishes about his son had had a great deal of pride, inconsiderateness, and egoistic folly in them. But still, the disappointed father held a strong lever, and Fred felt as if he were being banished with a malediction. "'I hope you will not object to my remaining at home, sir,' he said, after rising to go. "'I shall have a sufficient salary to pay for my board, as of course I should wish to do. 
"'Board be hanged,' said Mr. Vincey, recovering himself in his disgust at the notion that Fred's keep would be missed at his table. "'Of course your mother will want you to stay. But I shall keep no horse for you, you understand, and you will pay your own tailor. You will do with a suit or two less, I fancy, when you have to pay for them.' Fred lingered. There was still something to be said. At last it came. I hope you will shake hands with me, father, and forgive me the vexation I have caused you. Mr. Vincey, from his chair, threw a quick glance upward at his son, who advanced near to him, and then gave his hand, saying hurriedly, Yes, yes, let us say no more. Fred went through much more narrative and explanation with his mother, but she was inconsolable, having before her eyes what perhaps her husband had never thought of, the certainty that Fred would marry Mary Garth that her life would henceforth be spoiled by a perpetual infusion of goths and their ways, and that her darling boy, with his beautiful face and stylish air, beyond anybody else's son in Middlemarch, would be sure to get like that family in plainness of appearance and carelessness about his clothes. To her it seemed that there was a goth conspiracy to get possession of the desirable Fred, but she dared not enlarge on this opinion because a slight hint of it had made him fly out at her as he had never done before. Her temper was too sweet for her to show any anger, but she felt that her happiness had received a bruise, and for several days merely to look at Fred made her cry a little, as if he were the subject of some baleful prophecy. Perhaps she was the slower to recover her usual cheerfulness, because Fred had warned her that she must not reopen the sore question with his father, who had accepted his decision and forgiven him. If her husband had been vehement against Fred, she would have been urged into defence of her darling. It was the end of the fourth day when Mr. Vincey said to her, "'Come, Lucy, my dear, don't be so downhearted.' You always have spoiled the boy, and you must go on spoiling him. Nothing ever did cut me so before, Vincy, said the wife, her fair throat and chin beginning to tremble again. Only his illness. Poor, poor, never mind. We must expect to have trouble with our children. Don't make it worse by letting me see you out of spirits. "'Well, I won't,' said Mrs. Vincey, roused by his appeal and adjusting herself with a little shake, as of a bird which lays down in a ruffled plumage. "'It won't do to begin making a fuss about one,' said Mr. Vincey, wishing to combine a little grumbling with domestic cheerfulness. "'There's Rosamond as well as Fred. Yes, poor thing. I'm sure I felt for her being disappointed of her baby, but she got over it nicely.' baby pooh i can see lydgate is making a mess of his practice and getting into debt too by what i hear i shall have rosamond coming to me with a pretty tale one of these days but they'll get no money from me i know let his family help him i never did like that marriage but it's no use talking ring the bell for lemons and don't look dull any more lucy I'll drive you and Louisa to Riverstone tomorrow. End of chapter fifty six of Middlemarch by George Eliot. Read by Losh Rolander.